Father, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you for the crisp weather. We thank you for your mercy that's renewed every morning. We thank you for a place to meet um, and to discuss your word, to ponder things that you've done and are doing among your people today. Lord, we pray for hearts that are open to receive instruction from your word. We pray for your Holy Spirit to move our hearts to love Jesus more and to focus on Him and to prize Him above all the things that distract us, the worries that we can dwell on, the achievements that we latch on to and prize above the beauty of Jesus and what He's calling us to do in the world today. We pray that this time would be um, a sacred time, a, a time of uh, hearing your voice as it's being um, proclaimed to us today through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, we are in Numbers. Hey. Morning. Numbers chapter 9. We are continuing our journey through the first five books of the Bible. And like the children of Israel, we've been on this for several years and have no end in sight currently. All right, I'm just kidding. We're looking at Numbers 9. I'm trying to get here. Our passage today picks up after Moses has set up the tabernacle and anointed and consecrated it. Remember, that was the big thing that we've seen in the two cycles of Numbers that we've gone through, or the, we're finishing up the second cycle today, that there was the, the celebration of... Um, in the second cycle, the presence of God, and it centered around the tabernacle and what was being done there. Uh, so Moses has set up the tabernacle. He's anointed it. He's consecrated it. He's consecrated the altar. We saw that. Uh, and he has purified the priesthood. And all of this was done just as the Lord commanded Moses. That was, the, again, the nod to the obedience that we feel, that we see, that we hear going on uh, in this first part of Numbers. Let's look at Numbers 15, Numbers 9, verse 15. And it has an interesting little turn here. On the day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony. And at evening, it was over the tabernacle like the appearance of fire until morning. So it was always... The cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. And whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent, after that the people of Israel set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the people of Israel camped. All right, let's look. Uh, oh, wait, verse 18. Let's read that too. At the command of the Lord, the people of Israel set out. And at the command of the Lord, they camped. As long as the cloud rested over the tabernacle, they remained in the camp. All right, so notice the time frame here. We talked a little bit at the beginning of this cycle about how, he, how Hebrew literature did, did time, right? That how, they, how they recognized. Was, did they do things chronologically? Let's just review. Did they do things chronologically when they did history? Nope. No. Weirdos. Not often. They were, very, they were not Western thinkers. They recorded history... But they would do history kind of in a, in a way that made a point, that had a theme, right? And we see in the second cycle, 
It's so fun. Second cycle. It's like alliteration. I'm Baptist. I, don't even, I, can't, even, I can't escape it. The second cycle of... <clears throat> I'm going to forget. I'm not going to do it. Uh, that they're looking at the presence, celebrating the presence of God among the people, right? And so there was the time frame in the second cycle where it went back before the first cycle. So it was the second month of the second year in the first cycle. Now it was the first month of the second year. And I think that's right. And the, and the second cycle. Notice the time frame here. It reverts back to chapter 7 and Exodus 40. And we'll get to that in a second. Where, where it, it, it again looks at the first day of the second month of the second year that the sanctuary construction was completed. The whole section that we're going to read today, well, the, this first part here, uh, through chapter 9, this whole section is an expansion of the conclusion of Exodus in chapter 40. Let's look at that real quick. The conclusion of Exodus that we went through, lo, those many moons ago. It says, then uh, in verse 34, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting, because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night in the sight of all of the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So that's the way that Exodus ends. And this passage here fleshes that out. And it does so for a reason. What's about to happen? Where are we? What happens next? Do they stay at Sinai? We're at the very end of the whole Sinai cycle. So there's two cycles that are out the wilderness of Sinai. They're about to head somewhere. Where? Where are they going? What's the whole point of being out here? Promised the, land. the promised land. They're headed to Canaan. What's in Canaan? Jesus. Enemies and milk and honey. It's kind of a thing. <laughs> They're going to the promised land. Is that going to be an easy endeavor or a difficult endeavor? How are they going to get there? Do they know the way? Do they have food, enough food for the way? So what we have here is a divine, well, we call it a theophany. You've never heard of that term before. Theophany is a, it's a physical representation of the presence of God in the camp. Okay? And even though this is a kind of a, a riff off of Exodus 40, a lot of the smart folks say that this is a, a real rhythmic way that this passage is done. Kind of hints at it, it's pulling from a hymn or a song that Israel had about the presence of God in the cloud and the presence of God in the fire at, at the tabernacle. So you can imagine um, if, you, if you spend a, a mile in their sandals that they were singing as they're traveling about the presence of God in the camp. Um, and that would seem to be consistent with the atmosphere of the second cycle that focuses on the celebration of the community of the presence of God and, and they're following His commands in, in, in obedience. What are they about to do? They're about to march from Sinai to Canaan. Um, look at that language. It, it says that the cloud um, over the tabernacle, comma, over the tent of meeting. Why would it say it that way? What do you think? Covered? What were you? 
Uh, and that, let's see, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, the tent of the testimony, I'm sorry, the tent of the testimony in verse 15. It, it, some scholars look at that, it says the tabernacle, which is a general tabernacle complex, and then it's set opposite to the tent of the testimony, which would be uh, a nod to the holy place. So some guys say that the, the cloud didn't cover the entire tabernacle complex, but it was just limited to the holy place. Which would say, this is where God is dwelling. This is where the tent is. This is, what, this is the presence. The, we have here the Emmanuel principle. You've heard of this? God with us. We just had Christmas, so it's kind of... The Emmanuel principle is God with us. And so the, a lot of scholars think that this is placed in the cloud above the holy place as opposed to the entire complex. And that may be true. It seems, seems consistent. Uh, look again at, um, at the repetition of the words at the command. At the commands, uh, quite a few times. Literally, that means at the mouth of Yahweh. So this whole setup is that Israel's journey is at the direction of Yahweh, not by any man's plans. Whether Israel moves or camps, it's always at the command of God. That sounds great right now, right? Um. But the middle of chapter 10 is coming. We'll get there soon. All right. Let's look at verse 12. I'm sorry. I did not say verse 12. What I meant to say is verse 19. And we're, we're doing Hebrew chronology here. <laughs> Even when the cloud continued over the tabernacle many days, the people of Israel kept the charge of the Lord and did not set out. Sometimes the cloud was a few days over the tabernacle. And according to the command of the Lord, they remained in camp. Then according to the command uh, of the Lord, they set out. And sometimes the cloud remained from evening until morning. And when the cloud lifted in the morning, they set out. Or if it continued for a day and a night, when the cloud lifted, they set out. Whether it was two days or a month or a longer time, that the cloud continued over the tabernacle, abiding there, the people of Israel remained in camp and did not set out. But when it lifted, they set out. At the command of the Lord they camped, and at the command of the Lord they set out. They kept the charge of the Lord at the command of the Lord by Moses. All right. So, repetition. Repetition, repetition, repetition. It gets a little tedious. I guess they can set up and break camp pretty quick. I guess so. We'll get to how they knew to do that in a second when we get to that. But what's the point the writer is making with this repetition? What is he saying? What is he trying to draw out? God's directing their every step. God's directing their every step, and what else? They're obeying it, right? He gives the command through appearance. He raises up or he sets down. They raise up or they set down. And it doesn't matter if it's a day, two days, a week, a month, or an indefinite period of... Or a long time, it says. An indefinite period of time. He keeps them in a season when he keeps them in a season. Is that instructive to us? Right? How do we respond to the season? Do we respond to it in the middle of chapter 10 through the rest of the book with bitterness and grumbling? Or do we respond to it this right here with joyful obedience at the charge of the Lord? This is where he has me. I'm going to stay here and I'm going to love him in the midst of it. It's a challenge, right? 
In no uncertain terms, Israel is told, is told to obey the word of the Lord in their travel from Sinai to Canaan. Canaan. Divine guidance is a source of Israel's path through the wilderness. They're not going to make it unless they follow him exactly. What does the text say about their response? What does it say again and again and again? What's the language that he uses? At least how it's translated here in the ESV or whatever version you may have that needs to be reworked. I'm just kidding. It's a joke. What does he say? What do they do? What's the language? According to the command of the Lord. According to the command of the Lord, what else? What the, what's the language? They remained in the camp, it says twice. Okay. What begins the refrain and what ends the refrain? <clears throat> they obeyed the Lord's order. Obeyed the Lord's order. That's one translation says that. Another one would say they kept the charge. You see that language? Garden keep. Their response is one of a priestly devotion to what God is saying. It's keeping what God has commanded making it, treating it as if it's precious to do so. It's, a, it's what we call an inclusio. You've, you've heard that term maybe before, where it starts and ends with a phrase, and it's to emphasize the careful and exact obedience of the people of God here. Whether it's two days or longer, they remained. It did not set out on their own. All right. Yeah. it's instructive to us because they were told... You're going to go to the promised land. You're, it's going to be yours. I've given it to you. And so there would be a temptation to, well, let's just go take it. it you know, why are we sitting around waiting here for months? Mm -hmm. why, why can't we just go take it? This is what God has promised us. This mm -hmm. is, and so it's just instructive that it's not only the ends, but it's the means and it's the timing mm -hmm. and all of it that we're supposed to be obedient in. And that even if it's something that may be good or something that, you know, is um, something that we could see that God's leading us toward, when we rush it and we push it and we manipulate the circumstances, mm -hmm. we're being disobedient. Right, right. We're not keeping the charge. We're not keeping what He is doing. As precious, right? All right. So there's the theophany, the the God's covering of the tabernacle. Let's look at chapter ten. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, "Make two silver trumpets of hammered work. You shall make them, and you shall use them for summoning the congregation and for breaking camp." And when both are blown, all the congregation shall gather themselves to you at the center of the tent of meeting. But if they blow only one, then the chiefs, the heads of the tribes of Israel, shall gather themselves to you. All right, we'll stop there for a second. Remember, Numbers is a collection of a lot of different types of genre. There's narrative, there's poetry, there's, there's prophecy, there is, um, there's history, right? So, and then there's law. Here we have a little snippet of law, just thrown in for good measure because it's been a while, at least a week, since we've seen law. So, this law is put in here right before the narrative of the journey begins. They're about to leave Sinai, so he puts in this law about two silver trumpets. They're ready to break camp, set out, but 
you got to do things in unison. You got to know when to do what he's telling you to do. So if the cloud lifts, everybody goes, okay, we got to go. What do, what do we do? What are we doing it? What's going on? You've got, remember, you don't have email. You don't have, you know, I don't know, FaceTime or whatever. And, and the, each of the heads of the tribes are going, okay, are you going? No, are you going? Are you? And they're not doing that. So the way that they signal to each other is through these two silver trumpets. And some scholars say that they were set to different tones, one high, one low, little high, little low. Uh, and you had, you knew based on how they were done, these certain signals. You listened for the trumpet. So they're ready to break camp and set out, but they need to know how to or, or when to strike camp at the proper time and in unison. And we're going to see uh, three uses for these trumpets, but ultimately they're for one use. We'll see kind of how that works in a second. First, what do they look like? What does it say? Silver. 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 Silver's good. Hammered work. Hammered work. What does that mean? And where have we heard that term before? The lampstand, that's right. That's a very rare Hebrew word that's used mainly, most of the times it's used for dealing with a lampstand. Hammered gold, it says. Here it's hammered work for the trumpets, which indicates what? Metalworking. Anyone here a smithy? Chelsea would be to tell you. It's very intricate work, right? Decorative. It's a beautiful thing to proclaim, let's go, when it's been a long time that the cloud has been sitting on the tabernacle. It's a beautiful thing. And so they have these trumpets. Now, you, you've seen some of these other trumpets, like, I don't know, a lot of charismatic churches have these around Easter where they get these big ram horns and they do this thing in their church and they're like, yeah, we're Jews. Uh, no, you're not. They do this thing. Sorry, I grew up with that. Um, this is not the ram's horn trumpet. Although that's used, and there's some similar uses to it, um, these are very intricate pieces of work, of metal work. And um, some of the pictures that we have in ancient ruins, like the, the, uh, the Arch of Titus in Rome, depicts the spoil uh, from Jerusalem. And it shows these trumpets as part of that spoil. It shows them as long, slender tubes that are flared on one end like a bell. So it's really long. You know, all the, all the uh, I don't know, English movie the old english movies that you watch where they enter you know here comes the king and, they, and there's a flag at the bottom it's a kind of long tube with the the flare right so that's kind of the trumpet it's not a ram's horn thing going on there it doesn't, it's not, it doesn't look like a conch shell um all right the first function of the trumpets is what what is it what do we see what is there to do with this summoning the congregation so summoning the congregation um one, uh, one if by sea, two if by land. Is that the way that works? So you have a signal that's set up for summoning the congregation. They're going to do things together. Notice the trumpets aren't about having one person come. I mean, it's a congregational thing that they're doing. They're all doing it together. One is for what? Which is... Breaking the camp? For breaking camp. Okay, if two... If, if two are sounded, everybody comes together, getting ready to go. If one is sounded, just the leadership is to come to the door of the tent of meeting, right? So we have these signals. Look at verse 5. Let me find it. Okay, there it is. 
When you blow an alarm, the camps that are on the east side shall set out. And when you blow an alarm the second time, the camps that are on the south side shall set out. An alarm is to be blown whenever they are set out. But when the assembly is to be gathered together, you shall blow a long blast, but you shall not sound an alarm. And the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall blow the trumpets. The trumpets shall be to you for a perpetual statute throughout your generations. All right, so you have then additional instructions on the gathering and the leaving. So we have this differentiation between what they're supposed to do. A long blast, a signal for meeting, a short blast, or an alarm, it's called in the ESV. Then the camps are to move out according to the position that they are around the, ta uh, the tabernacle. And this section, what's weird about this? It includes the eastern and the southern tribes. What does it not include? North of the West. That's a very good deduction. So you have no instruction for these other guys. Are we to say then that the North and the, and the West, I was going to say it again, the North and the West just don't know what to do? Is that? They follow suit. They follow suit. They're looking, these are, it's assumed that whenever the blasts are done, you're going the direction that the cloud is moving and everybody just kind of follows where it's going based on the trumpet blast, which which, uh, you know, I don't know if you remember grade school. Okay, row one, go. Now row two, go. I mean, this is kind of the idea uh, of, this, of this trumpet blast here. Um, the omission of the, of the west and north may have been that, that the remainder of the tribes would just set out when the first tribes leave. Okay, inserted in the middle here is that the blowing of the trumpets is solely under the duties of whom? Aaron's sons, the priesthood, right? This is a priestly duty to announce, to proclaim a call. So what's the thing? They blow the trumpets and what are the... It's a call to action, right? Oh, we see what God is doing. Trumpet blasts. It's a call to action and either you do what? Either you obey or you don't. So, I'm just thinking of the book of Revelation. Okay. Because there's a there's a cloud, he will come on the clouds, and there sure. will be a trumpet blast. Sure. And you're to obey and to move out as one congressional. There there is a there is a, a lot of imagery, and that's why I think these books are so foundational to everything. There's a lot of imagery that the New Testament pulls from. That's that's here. All right, look at verses nine and ten. And when you go to war in your land against the adversary who oppresses you, then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets that you may be remembered before the Lord your God, and you shall be saved from your enemies. On the day of your gladness also, and at your appointed feast, and at the beginnings of your months, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings. They shall be a reminder of you before your God. I am the Lord your God. All right, so what are these other two options on the trumpets? What are the other two uses on the trumpets? One is for war, right? How does he characterize it? What are the trumpets for? Oh, wait, we're going to war? What else is involved in that? Maybe remembered by the Lord. What does that mean? Maybe remembered by the Lord. And he'll hear you Yeah, so there's a call. God, we're about to go fight. Be with us. Mm-hmm. The trumpet is a, is a prayer 
to God, help us as we fight against the oppressor. And you'll see this again and again if we ever get to the, Josh, to the book of Joshua, which is looking a little sketchy. But uh, if we ever do, you'll see this. In the battles, they would blow these trumpets. This is a prayer to God, be with us in the battle, right? What else is it? Rejoicing also. Times of feasting, times of celebration. When kings were, uh, during the coronation of a king, they would use these trumpets. Uh, when the ark was dedicated into the tent, uh, they used these trumpets. Uh, at different times throughout Israel's history that were celebratory, they would use these trumpets not only to announce the joyful celebration at the beginning of the months over the sacrifices, all this kind of stuff, not only to announce the joyful celebration, but what else was it to be? What else is it, what else is tagged to these trumpets? For the offerings and sacrifices. Yeah, that what? That the Lord was to say. Same thing as war, right? That the Lord will remember you. So whether you're about to go into battle or whether you're rejoicing in what God has done, you it, there's a prayer. Remember us. Keep us before you, right? All right. How does it conclude? What is the last part of this last Sinai cycle in Numbers? What is the last thing it says? I'm the Lord your God. It ends on a sounding note. Thank you. Stayed up all night with that one. Of the sovereignty of God over the nation. That's how it ends. These two, these first two cycles in the wilderness of Sinai end on the sovereignty of God over the nation. We leave when He raises. We stop when He sits. We blow trumpets calling Him, reminding Him, asking Him, praying to Him to help us in these things. The movement of the cloud was the divine directive. The sounding of the trumpets was a call for human response. Is there any neutrality here? You either do it or you don't. I mean, think about it. The trumpet sounds. You know what the divine directive is because you've seen the cloud, you've seen the fire, however it's going to work. The trumpet sounds, and you're like, well, I don't know. Everybody else is... And you're sitting there. Is there neutrality? By not moving, what have you done? Decided. You've decided to disobey the call to action by the trumpet, right? There's no neutrality. Indecision is a decision. Once the cloud lifts and the trumpet sound, if you stay put in indecision, the rest of the camp moves, you made a decision. So a couple of things stand out to me with these two passages together. First, wouldn't it be nice to have a cloud and pillar of fire to hover over where you're supposed to go and what you're supposed to do? Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be nice to kind of have a, a red light, green light, liver shiver by the Holy Spirit? Wouldn't that be great? Or a dream or a vision like these guys had at times. I really wish God would just speak to me and tell me what He wants me to do. We have the Bible, though. What? What? How silly. How silly is that? And I mean, do you, have you heard this? I just wish God would speak to me. Here's an answer. You want God to speak to you. 
You need three things. I'm going to give it to you. We're going to write this down. <laughs> write this down. You need three things. To hear God speak to you, you need three things. One, a nice hot cup of coffee, <laughs> your Bible, and a working voice. <clears throat> if you want to hear God, stop it. If you want to hear God speak to you, read the Bible out loud. We have a more sure prophetic word. Isn't that what Peter says? In the day in which we live, we have a more excellent word than clouds, visions, and liver shivers. Look at 2 Peter 1, 16, starting verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. What an experience! What an incredible thing! Cloud, smoke, voice from heaven, Moses on one side, Elijah on the other, Jesus in the middle, very, very clean clothes, shining bright. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice, you actually hear his voice, was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. That's amazing. I would think that would be a green light. Go. Right? But what does he say in verse 19? And we have something more sure. What do you mean more sure? More sure than what my eyes have seen, my ears have heard? More sure... We have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. More sure is God's self authenticating word than my experiences. Even the experience of transfiguration doesn't compare with what you hold in your hands or on your phone or however you're doing it this morning. But it's just reading. I'm not seeing the smoke. I'm not seeing the lightning. I'm not seeing the whatever. I'm not hearing the ram's horn on Sunday morning as the guy says, come on up here, let me knock you down. I'm not saying all that. It's reading. But it's more certain than any of our experiences could be. We start with the premise of God said. That's the ultimate authority. You start from that premise. What has God said? Even more fully confirmed, he says, in the experiences of the transfiguration where God speaks from heaven is the Bible you hold in your hand. If you want to hear God speak to you, Read it out loud. All right, the second thing. The, uh, it's not secret, I guess, is the point I'm trying to make, what God wants you to do. So we go to A&M's, we go to UT, we go to SFA's, and we go to, I don't know, the others. Do so you want me to get married? Do so you not want me to get married? Do so you want me to have kids? Do so you not want me to have kids? Now that I have kids, should I set them up for adoption because they're driving me crazy? What, what should I do with kids? I mean, all of these questions hit us. But what does it say? How is that more certain? 
How is the word of God more certain than my red light, green light, liver shiver? How is it more certain? The red light, green light, liver shivers depend on the taco you ate the day before. <laughs> this is written. This is, what, this is what he's given. And if I'm working on this stuff, we spend so much time worrying about out there, the future. But if I'm working on the stuff that's in here, the stuff that he tells me to do, the stuff that's in black and red, as I'm working to get my heart in line with that, his desires become my desires. And as I'm applying his desires to the world around me, I'm going to naturally follow the gifts and callings he's given me. Right? I'm built a certain way. This is what I'm drawn to, to do. And I'm going to apply these principles to the things that are around me. So I'm going to do them naturally. Look back and say, oh, I see why that happened. But see, we're creatures. We can look back. We're not God. We can't look forward. And that bothers us. Doesn't that bother you? It bothers me. But that's humbling. That's part of being a creature under the hand of a loving, holy God. All right, the second thing that strikes me in our passage today is that joyful obedience, responding to the call of action by God, is by nature a declaration of war. Those trumpet sounds were a declaration of war to everyone else around them. What they did, they did together to the exclusion of the nations who did not follow God. Every act called for by these trumpets is in opposition to the culture around them. They're doing things together as a distinct nation. They're following the voice, or they're following the, the, the theophany of God, the command of Moses at the direction of God. They're following Him joyfully. Joyful obedience is in opposition to everything around them. The call to assembly as a people was in opposition and distinction to the world around them. The call to joy, their festivals, was a call in opposition to what the world around them rejoiced in. The call to war, obviously, was not for the purpose of making peace with the world. They didn't make peace with the people in Canaan, or they shouldn't have. Some of them they did. What does John tell us? Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. There's no neutrality. You can't just sit when you hear the trumpet. You've got to move. To not move is to be a part of a system that's apart from God. James 4 says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There is no neutrality. The call to action calls us to move. And yet, we don't make war the way the world makes war, do we? 2 Corinthians 10 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. We don't follow the Quran in that idea. For the weapons of our warfare are not the, of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Our warfare is first in our own hearts, right? There's enough to fight there to last you a lifetime, and it will. But also our warfare is against 
um, showing the fallacy of the worldviews apart from Christianity that, that buy into lies. We're about the truth, right? We're about the truth. Um, so many ways to go with that. I think you know what's going on in the world these days. We'll just leave it there for now. Here's a question. When other nations heard those trumpets, do you think they had warm feelings? Oh, that's a pretty trumpet. <laughs> Children of Israel marching this way. Three million people coming at me. That's pretty. Did not sound like a ram horn. Did that, did that put a smile on their face to hear those trumpets? No. What does it say in Joshua 5.1? As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. What happened before they marched? They blew the trumpets. We're coming. And they followed the trumpet, the call to action, in joyful obedience. When we act in obedience to the commands of Christ, um, that's a declaration of war to those around. And look how they respond. Oh, those, those Christians, they, those men really love their wives. <laughs> so much so that they don't they don't allow themselves to be in a room alone with women. That's so sweet. That's, that's such a good thing to do. No. It's a declaration of war to a sensuous society that wants all things permissible. Therefore, they attack. Right? Those Christians, they, they really believe that life starts at conception. That's a beautiful. That's really, what a, what a neat idea that is. No. It's a declaration of war to the culture around us that we prize human life because they're the cult of death. Right? It's a declaration of war. Uh, Rahab in Joshua 2 says, as soon as we heard it that Israel was coming, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens and above and on the earth beneath. What does it mean when the world sees the church actually marching in joyful obedience to the King? Their heart melts because I, this is a declaration that I can no longer be King. I'm no longer God. What you're doing says it's calling me to have to submit to the God that you worship. That's a declaration of war. And not a shot's been fired. Not a sword has been drawn. Not a cannon has blasted. And yet it's perceived and is war against the culture around us. The call to response is a call for the war for joy in what Christ has done, what Christ is doing, and what Christ will do. We follow that call as a people distinct from the world. However this looks, whenever it's going to happen, there will be a final call for an assembly of God's people, and those who are truly His will be revealed. 
So the call to us is love what he loves now, right? Rejoice in what he rejoices in now. Hate what he hates now. Fight what he fights now. And Paul tells us that for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the air, in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Encourage each other in joyful obedience to the call of Christ in the world. We're to encourage each other. Press forward. Don't get weary of doing good. Press forward in your own um, fight against sin in your heart. Press forward in your own stirring up the heart to love Jesus more than you did yesterday. Press forward in fighting down the things that distract you. Um, in, in, in your walk with Christ. Press forward in making arguments, studying the issues, knowing what the Bible says about the things that are plaguing our culture today and the hot issues today. Press forward in that. Those are good things to do. That's a call of God on us and, what, and how we are to be salt and light to the earth. You know what salt is, right? In the old ancient times, salt was not just something that was seasoning. Salt was a preservative. The culture is rotting and we as people of God, being in joyful obedience to the king's commands, are staying the decay. The um, speed of the decay, I think, indicates how well we're doing our job. But we need to be about joyful obedience. Okay, it is 10.01, and the powers that be still be about 10 o'clock. So... <laughs> I have not, but there will be an, uh, the intercom thing, I'm sure, soon. Let me pray, and if y'all want to talk about some things afterwards, we can do that. But let me go ahead and pray, and those people that need to leave at 10 can, can <laughs> be late. <laughs> God, we do thank you that your word is clear as a trumpet. It's clear to us what you've called us to do, and that's to love Jesus with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And in doing that, we love our neighbors as ourselves and you define what love is you define how it's to be expressed you define how we are to pursue it not the culture God would you help us in the warfare that we have against ideas and worldviews that are the antithesis of Christ we want to follow him joyfully would you help us do that by your spirit in Christ's name we pray amen, amen. So next week...